Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the life and counterlife of Philip Roth, plague, pestilence, and pandemics throughout history, white freedom and the racial history of an idea, how the Neolithic Revolution transformed Britain. And we'll end the show going on a quest for the lost city of Alexandria. Now, last week we discussed the Mexican-American War and debated its cause and whether it helped accelerate the end of slavery in the United States. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the life and work of Philip Roth. The winner of a Pulitzer Prize, National Book Award, and the Man Booker International Prize, Philip Roth maintained a remarkable productivity throughout a career that spanned almost 50 years. And a new book delves into the shaded world of Philip Roth to identify the ghosts, the character and even the identity of the man. The book is called Philip Roth, A Counterlife. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs around €26. The author is Ara Nadel. And Ara, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Can we begin with some of the complications uh, around uh, Philip Roth that he seems to, there seems to be a lot hidden beneath the surface and sometimes not too deeply hidden, a lot of anxiety, sometimes anger and uh, could be a quite difficult figure. Well, he's a very complicated figure. And uh, as you rightly note, there was a great deal under the surface. And I think there was this contradiction between an extremely private life and a public life. And writing the fiction, writing the novels, was his effort to bridge those two particular worlds. But he did it in a very um, obvious way because he really wrote autobiographical fiction. So not only did he use aspects of his life, such as his family, um, but also his his world, particularly the world of Newark, New Jersey, not only at the beginning, and this is what's pretty interesting, throughout the entire career, because his last novel, Nemesis, is also about the very place where he started, which was Newark, New Jersey. So it's it's not quite a mirror, but it's a very complicated, uh, almost Alice in Wonderland looking through the looking glass. And when you begin to do that, you discover all kinds of contradictions. And he liked to take elements of people he knew and put them in his works. And uh, they could be his wives, his girlfriends. And it was uh, very often with uh, his perspective and they were not very flattering portraits of them. Well, you're absolutely right there. If you begin to look at the letters, you find that many of his friends and former friends were offended by the way in which they appeared in his fiction. Now, that really begins with the two wives, uh, Maggie Martinson, the first one, and Claire Bloom, the second. And one of the persistent themes in his life is the idea of betrayal. And he felt betrayed by both women in different ways. The first was extremely um, uh, offensive because she really kind of trapped him into a marriage, suggesting that she was pregnant and he would do the honorable thing and marry her. 
but he also gave her money for an abortion, which she spent at the movies and shopping because she wasn't pregnant. But he finds out years later that this was the trick. With Claire Bloom, it was a little more difficult because he felt she didn't support him when he went through some very strong emotional um, difficulties brought on partly by the hospitalization caused by a knee operation and a sleeping drug that he took called Halcyon, which had tremendous psychological effects on him. And he felt she just didn't do anything. Uh, Now, that was just symptomatic of, I think, a more difficult relationship. So he encountered these moments of, well, I was going to say frustration, but much more than frustration, which given his sensitivity to relationships quickly became immense problems, obstacles for him. And that was characteristic of almost every relationship he had with women in particular, because every time they wanted to become closer and have a more sustained relationship, the more he backed away. And Claire Bloom told her side of the story in her memoir, which in turn angered him. And uh, he wrote a, a full, full-length account uh, refuting it, uh, which he wanted even to publish. Yes, that's absolutely true. And the whole story of Roth and his biographers is a story of, and I don't think it's too strong a word, revenge against Claire Bloom and what she proposed and outlined and described in her memoir, Leaving a Doll's House. And so you're absolutely right. He writes this long document uh, called Notes for My Biographer, which refutes Claire Bloom. He's advised not to publish it. It was actually announced and had, uh, you know, in what's called an ISBN, International Standard Book Number. I mean, it was prepared to reach the public. And finally, he listened to very close friends and said, don't do it. And so in turn, he said, fine, I will get my own biographer. And that's the beginning of a series of people who started to write the biography, didn't write the biography. This is the authorized life, and uh, that's led to immense complications, as the press has been reporting around the world. Um, But there are now my account of Roth and the other one. So it's it in and of itself, it's a fascinating story about Roth and his biographers, because he wanted, in simple terms, to control his own story after his death. Like, for... For Philip Roth's death was not the last act, and he left instructions, very clear instructions about what to do, how to tell my story. You mentioned friends and former friends, and there was quite a list of former friends, and I wonder why did so many go wrong? He was easily offended by... Um, a bad review. Even though you were a close friend, and there are many examples of this, you weren't thrilled with Operation Shylock, for example, his novel of what, I think 1993. And therefore, even though we've known each other for 12 years, I'm basically not going to talk to you anymore. And this repeated itself frequently. 
And one of his last and sustained friendships was with this uh, writer, Ben Taylor, who wrote a memoir. But he has a very important phrase in the memoir. He says, Philip Roth always litigated the past. The past never stopped. He would write critical letters and even essays about writers who had died eight years ago, six years ago, because they wrote two reviews that criticized his work. So what word would you like to use? Prickly? He's easily offended, um, and he never forgot an insult. You know, it was a most curious thing. And, of course, it creates a very tense relationship between, let's say, Roth and these other people who had no idea that he would become so offended, not just, you know, upset, but truly offended. And some of the letters that are in archives are, are really frightening in their anger uh, and the way in which his attitude towards these people just was just a wall that came down. And this happened in many, not just with other writers and critics, but with many personal relationships. And that's the sort of thing I try to talk about in, the, in my book. And finally, how great a writer was he when we separate the life from the work? And do you think people will be still reading his, his books in 50 years' time? And will they still be as popular as they are now? I think about that quite a bit, especially because of events of, say, the last four or five months. I think he will not be as popular, but he will still be read. And we can make that kind of distinction. I think that the kind of America that he presented in his fiction, not in obvious works like The Plot Against America, or the idea of Lindbergh becoming president, but the profile of America seen in works like The American Pastoral or a book I find can constantly fascinating, I Married a Communist all about the McCarthy hearings in the 1950s. Um, so I think because of the portraits of America he has presented, uh, yes, he will be read. He was also a fine stylist. The dialogue, the tone of his writing is really quite remarkable, and the creation of many characters. And now I'm thinking of The Ghost Writer, a very short book, novella, um, but it's a very powerful book, and it's about anyone who has aspirations to write. And one other short book of his that's quite good, I think, is The Dying Animal. And it's about illness, and it's about death, which overtook a great deal of his writing from probably mid-career. In a lot of ways, you could say Philip Roth tried to escape his popularity. And when you read about his reaction to Portnoy's complaint, um, I think you understand that, escaping popularity. He actually withdrew to upstate New York, to Woodstock, New York, and then he buys this farmhouse in a you know, kind of distant part of uh, Connecticut. But at the same time, he wanted attention. You see, that's the paradox. Perhaps with all of us, we'd like to be private. We have our individual lives. But if I've created a painting or a building or a short story, I'd like you to read it. And Roth was kind of caught in that trap. So 
to come back to your question, yes, he will be he will be read, but I don't think in the way in which he has been read during his lifetime. And I think the impact of the biographical discussions that have been taking uh, place will have an impact on his legacy, but he is fundamentally a writer, and that's how I think he will be understood 10, 20, 30 years from now. Okay, well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight about Philip Roth. The book is called Philip Roth, A Counterlife. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs around €26. The author is Ara Nadel. And Ara, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been quite a pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. As well as causing a huge loss of life, the COVID pandemic has taught us a great deal about ourselves and the way we live, illuminating tensions at the heart of society. A new book brings together first-hand accounts of pandemics through the ages to hold up a mirror to our own experiences of and responses to the crisis today. The book is called Plague, Pestilence and Pandemic, Voices from History. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson and costs £20 sterling, so about €24. Euro. The person who brought it all together is Peter Furtado. And Peter, you're very welcome back to the show. Great to be here again. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, everybody. In the last year and a half, we've learned an awful lot about pandemics and, and their impact and the devastation they cause. When you look at pandemics throughout history, how much do they have in common and how different has the the current crisis been? I think the current crisis has been different simply because of the extraordinary amount of uh, data that we have about it and the amount of knowledge that we have and the speed at which we can share uh, all of that. I I was thinking, if you can imagine, even if a pandemic had happened 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had social media, we wouldn't have had Zoom and all those other kind of things, but we also wouldn't have had the very, very easy sharing of the big data, the quick uh, analysis of the genome and, and so on. So we've, we've known exactly what is going on in the case of this pandemic. That's never, ever been the case with any of the major pandemics before. With the Spanish flu, for example, which was the last really major one uh, exactly 100 years ago, um, nobody knew what, they, what, what it was. And nobody had uh, real information as to what was going on, real-time information, what sort of people were being affected, what sort of people weren't, exactly where it was spreading and so on. Uh, in the past, of course, far, far less. It's interesting to uh, to read some of the accounts of early pandemics when people had no idea what it was that was facing them. But what they were doing was watching the disease slowly approaching them. So even the very, very first pandemic that's been recorded in history, the Athenian plague of 430 BC, which the historian Thucydides um, suffered from and and was an eyewitness of, the people in Athens were sitting there and watching it come slowly across from Egypt, across the Greek islands, and then arriving. And um, given that they had no idea what this thing was, uh, it's really chilling for us to imagine a very different world. Can we learn, and is it helpful for us to to look back at these earlier pandemics and plagues, and are they useful and helpful for us in the present day? I think it's interesting to look at some of these earlier ones to see the speed of recovery. I mean, pandemics are extraordinary, some of the biggest pandemics anyway, are extraordinary in terms of the number of uh, death that they cause, the amount of disaster. And the, the Black Death, for example, maybe killed 
half, maybe two-thirds of the population of Europe. It's the nearest thing we've ever suffered to Armageddon. Um, it had a long-term effect on uh, the amount of land that was cultivated, the number of people that there were, the, uh, the rise of wage laboring, the decline of serfdom, and so on. But no, 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 no countries fell. Wars continued, art society continued, towns quickly regenerated. Some of the earlier plagues in the, at the end of the Roman Empire were equally major events. Maybe 30, 50% of the population died in the Antonine Plague that killed Marcus Aurelius and, uh, and another emperor in the, in the second century. There was a similar plague, which was also um, bubonic plague in the sixth century. These things could have been disastrous for the Roman Empire and the early Byzantine Empire. In fact, life continued relatively smoothly. I mean, obviously, there was a there was serious loss of life. There was temporary decline in production. But broadly speaking, they were not massive cataclysms. Historically speaking, they were. I hate to use the word blips, but they they was they were they. they People recovered from them pretty quickly, and now here we are looking at, uh, at recovering from uh, from COVID. Hopefully, in the next few years, I think um, we talk about returning to normality or finding some sort of new normality. Um, I think we can believe that at least it will be possible to recover, and the world will will continue. I think at least there's a, there's a bit of hope about that. I wonder when you look back at other pandemics, were there similar responses in terms of some of the, the negative things we've seen, like fake news and conspiracy theories and deniers and so on? I wonder uh, in the past, did, did you have deniers of the Spanish flu or deniers of the plague in, in, in the Middle Ages? I'm not sure about deniers of the plague in the Middle Ages, although there were certainly people who... Uh, who went out saying the best way of dealing with this is to uh, is to get as much living in as quickly as we possibly can. They spent their time going around drinking, um, making merry in every possible way, thinking that was just as good as, uh, as, as, as hiding from it. And uh, perhaps they were right. Who knows? Um, and and certainly also there were there were there were fears that there were fake fake news. In 1832, for example, there was an outbreak of cholera. In Liverpool, um, which particularly affected the Catholic population in Liverpool, many of them Irish, of course, and a lot of people thought that this actually was an iatrogenic disease. It was actually a fake outbreak created by doctors, and the reason that doctors wanted to create it was because they wanted some bodies to dissect. It was just after the Burke and Hare scandal in Edinburgh when uh, people were digging up bodies so as to dissect them, and they thought this was going on. So, yeah, you do see those things. Similarly, um, right from the beginning of uh, inoculation against smallpox and then vaccination in the 19th century, people were very, very skeptical. People were having to compete against that. The anti-vax movement um, became strong in Britain in the mid-19th century when vaccination became compulsory and in the United States. And the language people were using about it is exactly the same as the language people are using today. And Peter, it really is fascinating. And do you think that the more we know, the better prepared we are to deal with these kinds of challenges and crises? One would hope so. There's 
An interesting quote made by one of the world's leading, in fact, Nobel Prize-winning virologists uh, called uh, Alexander uh, MacFarlane Burnett, rather, um, in 1972, and he said he thought the, the subject of infectious disease was basically over. There weren't going to be any more infectious diseases. There weren't going to be any more uh, interesting epidemics. Um, or, or pandemics. And of course, since 1972, there's been a huge uh, range of them. There's been everything from AIDS to Zika, mad cow disease, Legionnaire's disease, SARS, COVID, and so on. And as we all know, there are various reasons for this, including the um, environmental pressure, which causes um, viruses to move from uh, the animal population into the human population, and the rise in population, the spread and moving people around the place. All of these things have happened. We have got a lot more information, and yet we need to be prepared. I think one of the lessons from COVID is that we weren't prepared enough. It's very sad to read um, the long pieces that Bill Gates was writing um, a couple of years ago, 19, uh, 2017, 2018, after the Ebola crisis, saying the world is not prepared for the next pandemic and setting out exactly the sort of preparations that needed to be put in place. Were they put in place? No, because the politicians weren't prepared to invest in them. Very good. Well, it's, I think, a very timely study and I think it's one that people will be coming back to uh, many times in the months and years ahead. The book is called Plague, Pestilence and Pandemic, Voices from History. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson and costs £20 sterling, so about €24. Euro. Uh, Peter Furtado uh, put it all together. And Peter, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book traces the complex relationship between freedom and race from the 18th century to today, revealing how being free has meant being white. The book is called White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs £25 sterling, so about €28. The author is Tyler Stovall. And Tyler, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you for having me. It's a fascinating book and it's a, it's a fascinating look at some of these issues in the past. And talk to me about this racial history of an idea, because normally we associate freedom and democracy with all things good. And you show that when you go back to the Enlightenment and when you go back to, uh, say, the French Revolution and the, the, the fight for freedom and the, the American War of Independence and, and the creation of the United States, that, that freedom has these different layers to it and that racism isn't just something that is a, an unfortunate bit on the side. Right. Well, um, there's a couple of things that really got me going in terms of this idea. First of all was as I began to look into the whole history of freedom, I realized that freedom had different aspects, that many people thought that freedom was not always a good thing, for example. If you think of the term anarchy, for example, uh, freedom can be seen as a lack of rules, as a lack of propriety, as something bad. Um, but also the ways in which freedom was tied to images of race as whiteness as being a good thing. So I first really got interested in this idea several years ago when I was studying the whole history of the U.S. Capitol building. 
and the realization by many Americans that the U.S. Capitol building, which is one of America's great monuments, one of the great buildings that symbolizes the American ideal of freedom, was built in part by slave labor. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. How could you have a situation where something that symbolizes freedom was, in effect, built by slaves? And what really fascinated me about this, his history was how Americans chose to deal with the fact that a building they cherished was built by slave labor. And, you know, they, uh, the American Congress about 20 years ago decided it was going to deal with this by, in effect, baptizing part of the building, Emancipation Hall, as a way of symbolizing the, the lives of the slaves that built the, helped build the building. And I remember thinking to myself, on the one hand, that's very nice and it's a very honorable thing to do, but it also sort of misses the point that the people who built this building were not emancipated. They never knew emancipation themselves. For them, the building that symbolized freedom did not symbolize their own personal freedom at all. So it seemed to me this is a way of exploring how Americans and other people, French people in particular, have explored the importance of freedom as a crucial to our own nationhood, and yet at the same time, something that's really hard to distinguish from the racial parameters of freedom. So a lot of people see the racism as a as a contradiction or a paradox that it's a, a tension, you know, it, it's in opposition to all these high principles of freedom and and liberty. But you show that it's it's not a contradiction that freedom is is it, it's racially defined. That's right. That's right. Freedom is defined in racial terms. In order to be free, in effect, you have to be white. In order to be white, part of being white, in effect is being free. And I found time and time again, uh, if you looked at both American history and French history, this idea came up that uh, part of how people defined uh, being free was their racial identity. You know, if you were um, a free person, that inevitably inevitably meant being white in the United States and in France in the modern era. And one of the things I was really fascinated by was the whole era of revolution at the end of the 18th century, which had the American Revolution and the French Revolution, but also the role of the Haitian Revolution, which in some ways was the ultimate example of a a movement for freedom, a movement against slavery. And yet if you look at the way uh, independent Haiti was treated, it was seen as anything but a symbol of freedom. And in fact, the independent Haitian nation was forced to pay, in effect, reparations to the French for the destruction of French property during the, uh, during the revolution. Uh, and it did not stop paying those reparations until 1947, a century and a half after the revolution took place. So um, by all rights, Haiti should have been seen as the ultimate example of freedom, and yet it wasn't. It was seen as an outlier, as an example of what happens if freedom is, is extreme or, in effect, if freedom is black. So what about the Statue of Liberty then? Because you talk about that, this this famous gift from France to the United States. It becomes a great symbol of freedom. Give us your poor, your huddled masses. And uh, is, is there an element of, of, of whiteness to that as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in both France and the United States, I mean, the Statue of Liberty was designed by the French modeled really on other ideas, modeled on the whole idea of Marianne, 
the symbol of revolutionary uh, activism in France. Uh, and you can think of Delacroix's famous painting, Liberty Leading the People, in 1830 as a symbol of that. If you compare that painting, for example, to the Statue of Liberty that, is, that exists in New York Harbor, in uh, Liberty Leading the People, uh, the figure of Marianne, the figure of liberty is armed. She is leading an army. She is bare-breasted. She is very much a militant person in movement. The Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor, on the other hand, is pristine, is clothed, is carrying not arms, but rather a book of law. Uh, moreover, the statue of uh, the statue, as represented by uh, Delacroix, is carrying the Phrygian cap. The Phrygian cap was the symbol of the freed slave in the Roman Empire. This does not exist in the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. The Statue of Liberty is white. The other thing about the Statue of Liberty, of course, is that it is seen by most Americans as symbolizing immigration. For much of its history, starting in the 1880s. Many Americans saw the Statue of Liberty as a symbol of, of re resistance to immigration. Uh, there are literally cartoons that show the Statue of Liberty shrinking away in horror from the huddled masses congregating in New York Harbor at the beginning of the 20th century. Ultimately, it does become seen as a symbol of immigration, but only once those immigrants are seen as, in effect, white. And if you look at the broader role of the Statue of Liberty in the history of American immigration, it is worth noting that the Statue of Liberty stands in the one place in America that in effect came to symbolize white immigration, immigration from Europe. You do not have a statue welcoming Mexican immigrants, for example, uh, on the Mexican-American border. You do not have a Statue of Liberty welcoming Asian immigrants into California and in San Francisco Bay. And you certainly do not have a Statue of Liberty in Charleston, South Carolina in the site of the slave trade. One of the things the Statue of Liberty does, in effect, is tends to hide the fact that New York Harbor was one of America's great slave ports, uh, second only at, at points to Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and it hides the fact that many people who would become Americans who came into New York Harbor came so not as free immigrants, but as slaves. Fascinating. And do you think the idea then, these ideas have been challenged and changed sufficiently in, since, say, the Second World War? Is, is universal freedom now uh, separated from this concept of being white? Yes and no. There is a powerful movement, uh, both in the United States and in the colonized world, against colonialism, against racism, that really demanded freedom for all. This was the legacy of the two world wars, for example, in particular the Second World War. Which posed, the, you know, which posed for in the minds of millions, how could you fight against something like Nazi Germany and yet at the same time uh, practice racial discrimination, racial distinction? And so the result of that was the civil rights movement. The result of that was the struggles for decolonization in the world after the Second World War, which really transformed and to a large extent destroyed uh, formal European empires. But I would also say that there has been a backlash in many ways since the 1970s and 1980s. Certainly in the United States, for example, there has been a resistance to uh, speaking in terms of uh, complete racial equality. And as a resistance, it ultimately brought us the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, which just mercifully ended. Um, and in other parts of the world as well, there has been a resistance to the idea of complete racial equality. So I'm afraid this is simply uh, a battle that still needs to be fought and won.
Well, it's a fascinating study. It's called White Freedom, the Racial History of an Idea. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs about €28. The author is Tyler Stovall. And Tyler, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's my pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Focusing on the British Isles, a new book explores a period of huge societal change, the Neolithic or New Stone Age, through the most iconic artefact of its time, the polished stone axe. The book is called The Tale of the Axe, How the Neolithic Revolution Transformed Britain. It's published in paperback by Thames and Hudson and costs fourteen ninety nine sterling, so about €18. Euro. The author is David Miles. And David, you're very welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. Glad to be here. It's called The Tale of the Axe, but really it's about much more than than stone axes. It's about agriculture. It's about the emergence of agriculture. It's really about a revolution that transformed the world. Absolutely. Uh, the Neolithic Revolution, as it's sometimes called, but the, the transformation of the way humans lived, the development of agriculture is probably the most significant change until the Industrial Revolution. And why is the axe so important? What impact did that have? Because you had some that had a very practical purpose, say, for example, cutting trees down, but others seemed to have more of a symbolic value. That's right. As you said, I used this axe, which had been brought to me by a gravel quarrier who'd found it just outside uh, uh, the Devil's Coit's Henge Monument. That Devil's Coit's is a kind of local Stonehenge just outside Oxford. And this guy found it while he was digging gravel. And it uh, it was a perfectly preserved axe head made out of material from which had come from Langdale in the English Lake District, one of the biggest axe factories, as they're called, uh, in the British Isles. And uh, very distinctive material, be- quite beautiful material, greenish, hard, uh, very uh, very polished. The fact it was intact and didn't appear to be in use was probably because it had been buried as a deposit at this Henge monument because it wasn't just a practical object. It's not just the icon of the Neolithic. By the icon, I mean, it's the object that, why we talk about the new Stone Age, the uh, stone was being polished and that was something relatively new. In fact, it it was seen in Ireland before it was seen in England. But polishing axes was a new thing. It was a new technology, as you said, for able allowed farmers to cut down trees to clear the land for agriculture. But it also is an iconic object and a religious object. And many of these axes came from very remote places. Uh, they were obviously meant to be highly valued and sometimes were displayed and even had holes pierced in them so they could be hung up. And I think in a way they're almost like the sort of crucifix of the of the Neolithic. They probably represented uh, a religious idea as well as a practical object. And as you showed, the archaeology on the ground is hugely important and uh, the work that archaeologists are doing to, to, to explore what, this, what farming meant and, and the domestication that came with it, that uh, it's really uncovering, really quite, it's really changing how we understand so many things. Yeah, that's right, because, I mean, I've, I've retired as a field archaeologist now. I'm, my knees aren't up to it anymore. Uh, but... Uh, 
But the, when I first started in archaeology in the 19, late 1960s and so on, prehistory was still pretty dark. It was still pretty vague. You know, we didn't have we didn't have very detailed information about it. But in the last, well, particularly over the last 10, 20 years, it's, the study of prehistory has been transformed by, particularly by the fact that we can now date things much better. Uh, with radiocarbon dating, it's not just radiocarbon dating itself, but now with what's called Bayesian modeling, it's a sort of statistical manipulation of the dates. We can get really very accurate dates. And then there are all kinds of other techniques as well, genetics, for example, that tell us where people and where animals come from. Uh, we get loads of information now from uh, isotope analysis that can tell us, where, again, where people came from, but also what they were eating. And, and also we can uh, now fine-tune where objects come from. So, for example, our axe, we know precisely where it comes from. And we know that it was following in a tradition that was already centuries old, where in Europe, uh, absolutely fabulous green axes were being uh, quarried out of the Alps, a mountain called Monteviso. And there they were being shipped right up into northern Europe, into Brittany, and as far north as Scotland uh, in the period over 6,000 years ago. And... Uh, and again, these axes seem to be not particularly practical. I think that they were probably very high status objects, that people who wanted to show how important they were, the, 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 the big men, as they were sometimes called, or the chieftains of society, would have these things, not so much as a, as a, as a practical thing, but really almost a sort of show off with. It's, it's a bit like having a very flashy sports car not the most practical thing in the world, but it's it does your status no end of good. And David, sorry, as, as you show, this also has huge implications for the world we live in today, that, you know, this is that started something that we're still seeing running through our lives uh, in the present day. Yeah, that's right, because farming began, uh, let's say, about 10,000 years ago with the domestication of plants and animals. Uh, but uh, But in fact, it's been changing ever since. I mean, it's made all kinds of differences to us, of course, the development of cities, the development of writing, uh, but also things like, uh, for example, we've changed physically as a result. Um, in Northern Europe, most of us are lactose tolerant and we can drink milk. That's a relatively new thing. Most people around the world can't drink milk, but in Northwestern Europe, and uh, particularly places like Scandinavia and Ireland and Britain, uh, we we can. Uh, we've even changed our skin colour over the last 10,000 years or so. Uh, it's not that long ago since most of us were dark-skinned. And uh, so we've changed uh, the, uh, ourselves physically in a way, but also particularly socially, because what it's done is it's allowed us to to develop new ways of living, and particularly in much bigger communities. And uh, and we're still cha we're still undergoing a kind of agricultural revolution now in the way that we feed ourselves. Some of the things we're doing are pretty awful, of course, perhaps putting too much in the way of insecticides into our, into our land, we're damaging land. But at the same time, we now have 7 billion mouths to feed. At the beginning of this period, I think probably we could estimate that the human population since the beginning of the Neolithic has gone up something like 
7,000 times. So there's 7,000 more of us. I mean, 7, 000, I mean, there's 7 billion of us now, as opposed to a million. Of uh, So the pop human population, thanks to agriculture, has uh, expanded hugely. And of course, now is becoming a threat in its own right. It's a major contribution to the decline of species, uh, to the loss of soil, and uh, to climate change. Very good. Well, thanks so much for David and some really uh, interesting uh, uh, bits of food for thought there. Uh, I think that our listeners will really enjoy. The book is called The Tale of the Axe, How the Neolithic Revolution Transformed Britain. It's published in paperback by Thames and Hudson. costs about 18 euro. The author, David Miles. And David, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks very much. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. For centuries, the city of Alexandria beneath the mountains was a meeting point of east and west. Then it vanished. In 1833, it was discovered in Afghanistan by the unlikeliest person imaginable, Charles Masson, an ordinary working-class boy from London turned deserter, pilgrim, doctor, archaeologist and highly respected scholar. And the extraordinary story has now been told in a great new book, Alexandria, The Quest for the Lost City. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author is Dr Edmunds Richardson. And Ed, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So how does a city get lost and remain lost for so long? Most of them do, actually, which is a strange thing to think about, right? Um, wandering around Dublin or London and thinking that all this might just vanish beneath the ground one day. But most cities that have been founded throughout history aren't here now. They're, and most of them, we don't even know where they are. Um, Alexander the Great founded more cities than most, probably more cities than anyone else in history. Something like several dozen of them, all named after himself, Alexandria. And what I'm writing about is one of them in Afghanistan called Alexandria Beneath the Mountains. Now, this was founded by Alexander. It flourished for centuries. Um, we have, you know, Chinese travelers writing about it. We have stories of great Buddhist pilgrimages setting off from it. And then it just vanishes, um, whether because it was destroyed or because everyone left or because you know, there just wasn't any money there. People might have moved away. It might have been burned down. We can only speculate. But yeah, more cities get lost than survive, in fact. And then into this story comes this remarkable character who you describe so well. So tell us about Charles Masson and how he ended up there. So Charles Masson is not, it must be confessed, his real name. He's born James Lewis, an ordinary working class boy in London, he enlists in the army of the British East India Company, hoping to find some fame and fortune, or at least to get out of the slums of London. This does not go very well for him. He's sort of marched up and down India and uh, gradually realizes that he's just a sort of very insignificant cog in the imperial machine. So one day he deserts. He just sets out across the deserts, across the plains and the mountains of northern India into Afghanistan on his own. He doesn't speak a word of the local languages. He doesn't have a clue where he's going, but somehow he survives. He starts to become this kind of wandering storyteller. He'd arrive in a village, sort of tell a tale of being a pilgrim on the Hajj or a itinerant doctor or perhaps an Afghan prince if he was feeling particularly bold. And he goes on like this for years and he develops gradually this obsession with 
Alexander the Great, and he decides he wants to see if he can find one of Alexander's lost cities. So off he goes into Afghanistan, and of course, finding a lost, deciding you want to find a lost city, that's the easy part, actually finding one. Well, I mean, what do you, how do you do that? Do you just sort of wander around digging at random, seeing if you get somewhere? Do you consult maps? Well, there are no maps. Do you consult stories of people who had been there? Well, Masson doesn't have any stories of people who've been there. So he's lost. And then suddenly he starts to hear stories, stories in the marketplace at Kabul in Afghanistan, stories of ancient coins and relics which keep getting found in the soil in Bagram. It's the plain of Bagram, about 40 miles out of Kabul. And he thinks, well, if little things keep on getting turned up in the soil, maybe there's something more substantial underneath. Maybe there's a city underneath. So one day he sets out um, to see if he can find this lost city. And then uh, this dramatic uh, this dramatic discovery. And it's not just uh, the city, it's also all of these artefacts that he discovers, uh, including uh, a 2,000-year-old golden casket. He finds some incredible things. He's essentially the first person to really try to do systematic archaeology in Afghanistan. And what he recovers, as well as Alexander's lost city, is the lost Buddhist history of Afghanistan, because Afghanistan was one of the earliest and one of the most significant centers of Buddhist learning, Buddhist worship in the world. And what Masson finds is this entire lost, unknown landscape, just hidden a little bit below the surface of the ground in Afghanistan. And one of the things he finds, as you say, you say is this incredible golden casket. It's called the Bimaran casket. It's just this wonderful thing, and it has on it the earliest known image of the Buddha that we have. So the earliest datable image of all the hundreds of millions of images of the Buddha that are in existence in the world today. This one is the earliest. And it's so striking, not just because of how familiar it is, but because you can see ancient cultures connecting with with each other and talking to each other. The Buddha's dressed like a Greek, his tunic hangs in folds. It's like the folds of a Greek god or of a statue carved in Athens or in Egypt, in Alexandria in Egypt. And he's flanked by two Hindu gods, Brahma and Indra. So the earliest known depiction of the Buddha that we have, he's dressed like a Greek and he's flanked by two Hindu gods, which tells you something about the world at the time and about the ways in which cultures and ideas were in dialogue with each other and were connecting with each other. And that's something which is entirely new for the 19th century. And it also shows how there's this huge interest in the in the legacy of Alexander the Great and in all things to do with him and how it gets tied up with uh, imperial politics with Britain and uh, uh, with all of these global games that are going on at the same time. Alexander is just someone who people are obsessed about, right? It's an obsession which has been going on for thousands of years. Like everyone from obviously Western travelers to, you know, Egyptian chroniclers to Ethiopian monks to Persian poets to Icelandic bards, everyone, everyone's obsessed with the story. Everyone's drawn to it and everyone's trying to make it their own. So yeah, um, 
it's a story that kind of defines people's lives and Masson's search for Alexander is something which just absolutely fascinates people at the time. Very good. Well, thanks a million for joining us tonight, Ed, to talk about this. Uh, the book is called Alexandria, The Quest for the Lost City. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. A remarkable story about this this discovery, this incredible character, Charles Masson, and then all of the back history going back centuries that's involved as well. Dr. Edmund Richardson is the author. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be taking a trip to Xanadu as we look at the life and work of the great romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.